Romans 3, 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed the over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thanks, Dan. Um, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we definitely need um, your justification. And so, Lord, as we gather and we, we look at this scripture this morning, I pray that you would help us to see and to understand what it means to be justified. And Lord, in the coming weeks, as we unpack that, as we see what it is that you have done throughout history to, um, to bring this justification about, Lord, I pray that it would drive us, it would push us, Lord, it would draw us to an amazed love of you. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. And Father, I pray for our country as we're wrestling through uh, protests and, and turmoil and uh, a pandemic. Uh, Lord, you, you are not missing from these events. You're not divorced from them. Lord, you are sovereign over them. And so through it all, Lord, I pray that your church would be a manifestation of your care, your love, and your glory in this upside down world we live in. So Lord, would you equip us, call us, and use us for your glory. And now Lord, open this word to us. Open this text to us, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Jonathan, can you pin my video? Because everybody's recording is seeing all the pictures. While he's working on that, Let's just go ahead and get started. So back in chapter one, starting in verse 18, it began this section that goes all the way through what we did last week. So half of, her, half of chapter one, all of chapter two, and half, half of chapter three were this big unit. This big, big unit. Somebody needs to be muted. I'm hearing myself. <laughs> It's not, no, it's not you. Okay, there we go. So um, it's this big unit about how all of us need to be saved. And where we're coming to today is we're coming to find out what God's done about that, what, what's happened because of that. But the way it started is in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul began, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So it's the wrath of God that he was talking about in that section, um, but it's the wrath of God in conjunction with or in reaction to the unrighteousness of man. And so what do we mean? Let's just rehearse again. Rehearse again. What do we mean by God's wrath? Um, uh, J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, mortal, mortal, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So God's wrath is not this fickle thing. It's not him snapping and losing control. It's not him um, just having a flare of emotions and, and acting out in such a way that he might come back and, and regret what he had done or, or get over it. Um, God's wrath is this purposeful, it, it's, it's measured, it is, it is in reaction to something. It is not just a, lo a losing of uh, his, his uh, temper, it's a reaction to something. So just for example, picking Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 16, 18, he says of Israel, I will repay them double for their wickedness. So he's not saying, I'm going to just punish them until I'm just sick of doing it. He's, it's measured. I will repay them double for their wickedness. Um, later on in chapter 51, he talks about Babylon. He says, flee Babylon because he will repay her what she deserves. Um, it, it's, it's a measured amount that she deserves. And then later he says, he will repay her in full. There will be a certain amount of wrath that will be poured out. It is intentional. It's measured. Um, it's not just flying off the handle. Um, it's controlled. So, for example, looking through um, uh, the first five books of the Bible, well, the first Moses writings, Exodus through, uh, through Numbers, one of the things that God says repeatedly when Israel uh, acts unfaithful is God tells Moses, uh, depart from me, step back, for I'm going to let my anger burn against Israel. So he doesn't just snap and, and push Moses out of the way and then start zapping people. He says, step out of the way, and my, I'm going to let my wrath burn against them. So his, his wrath is controlled. It's not out of, um, out of a, a loss of control. I remember when I was a kid in junior high school, I got suspended for smoking. And at the time, my mom was a single mom working herself to death, trying to hold everything down. And she came home and she snapped. She was just angry. And she lost it. She, she really went at me. Um, and that was scary, but I knew when it was over, it was over. What was more challenging to me was when I did something and I could see my mom thinking about it carefully and deciding not in a flash of anger, but in this very measured, metered, this is what's going to happen kind of way. And so that's what God's wrath is. It's not that flare of anger, which can be scary, but it's also gone after a while. And, and a, a decent person would go, oh, I, may, I overreacted. I'm sorry. God's wrath is never like that. It is always exactly measured. It is always under his complete control. And it is always to be feared because God's wrath is that terrifying. It is that strong. Um, the other thing to think of is, is what Paul says there is God's wrath is not somehow beneath him or separate from him or, or um, you know, not his normal way of being. What Paul said is God's wrath is revealed from heaven. It's revealed from heaven where God is. So it's, it's not, God's wrath is not a, an ungodly thing. It's not a sinful thing. It is revealed from heaven. And, and it's, it's one of the things we talk about with, when we talk about the doctrine of God or the proper doctrine of God, 
is that God is simple. And that doesn't mean he's easy to understand. The, the Trinity is probably one of the most complicated, hard to understand uh, doctrines in, in probably all of religion. Um, but when we talk about the simplicity of God, what we mean is he is not a mix of attributes that kind of, if you get the numbers right and the balances right, then you come up with divinity. Um, God is divinity first and foremost, and that is expressed for us in different attributes, and wrath is one of them. Um, so his wrath is not uncharacteristic of God. It is actually part of who he is, what he does. But his wrath is provoked, according to Paul in, in chapter 1, verse 18, it's provoked by ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God, Paul has spent from that point, from verse 18 to what we saw last week, explaining the unrighteousness of man. And, and nobody got off the hook. Nobody escaped that. Do you remember? It was the, the first part was the, the pagan, the, the uh, Gentile, the irreligious. They just have all of these lists of sins that they indulge in. Well, obviously God's wrath is, is being stored up for them. But it was also against the moralist. The moralist would look at those people and say, no, not, I would never do that. But they are doing that. And then for the religious person, the Jew, he says, look, you have the oracles of God, and yet you still do these things. And, and wrath is being stored up for all of them. So that's, that's the picture we have to bring to where we're at now, because Paul has been carefully working to develop that picture. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Who is ungodly? Everybody is ungodly. And then we get to our section today, but now. His crescendo of that argument ended with these long quotes of different scriptures, the oracles of God. And, and it was about the unrighteousness and ungodly. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No, not one. And then the very next thing he says is, but now. So our question is, how should we flee? What should our, be, our reaction to be to this righteous, measured, controlled wrath of God? Um, well, he says, by the works of the law, no man was justified in his sight. That's the end of that last section. So it, it's not by cleaning up our act and behaving better. It, it's too late. Um, it, it, you will not be justified by the law. No one is justified in his sight. But now, so what we have to do is we have to start here by understanding we're all guilty. Whether we've had the law or not had the law, uh, we, we're all guilty. And so what he says then is now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. What he's talking about in this section is, is a, a term called justification. And, and Sometimes I think we're going to hit some technical terms. We'll have to do some, some technical work in this because there's a lot packed in here. But I think it's important that before we even dig into this, we understand what we mean by justification. What is Paul's meaning of justification? Um, I've heard some people say, just as if I had never sinned. Um, I don't think that's an accurate or an adequate explanation um, because what it sounds like is forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is a negative thing. You will not suffer consequences. But justification or to be justified is a positive. It's a status. You will receive these benefits um, that are deserved. Um, so um, one, one uh, 
commentator said, to speak of forgiveness is to say, you may go, you have been let off your penalty. But to speak of justification is to say, you may come, you are welcome into all my love and into my presence. So when, when we talk here about justification, it's not just saying God is pronouncing you innocent or saying you're not guilty. It, it's much more than that. It is something that is a status that we have been given, that we have been granted. So now what Paul is going to begin to do at the end of chapter three and kind of on through four is he's going to begin to talk about what does it mean to be justified? How are we justified? So here's where it comes from, beginning in verse 21. And now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So when we say the righteousness of God, what does that mean? Is, is, what is that talking about? Because um, those kind of phrases can be taken in one or two different ways. For, for example, many of our Psalms say of David. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean David wrote this Psalm? It's of David, David wrote it. Or is it a song that somebody else wrote, but it's about David, of David. So do you see that can go one of two different directions. So this righteousness of God, is this the inherent righteousness of who God is in his person? It's about God's righteousness, this righteousness of God? Or is it a righteousness that's from him that he gives? Well, Paul removes the ambiguity um, in verse 22. The righteousness of God, he repeats the phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that is not speaking primarily about God's attribute of righteousness. It is a righteousness that is given. It's a righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he clarified that for us. That's what we're talking about. So after we hear all this stuff in the previous two chapters worth of writing about how wicked we are, how bad we are, then we get, but God, uh, or but now the righteousness of God is made manifest. So this righteousness is what the reformers called an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It comes from somewhere else and is delivered to us. It's the righteousness of God, and it's been manifested apart from the law. So when he says manifested, the, the, I don't know we use the word manifested that much uh, these days, but what it means is has been shown, has been revealed, has been set forward, has been explained. It's, it's been re uh, um, revealed to us. The, this righteousness that comes from God that's given to us is revealed to us, but it's revealed apart from law. And again, Paul's use of law can be complicated. Um, I think what he's talking about here is probably in the broader sense, uh, just law as a moral principle, because remember the moralists had law, the Gentiles sometimes do what is according to law. And what he's saying is none of that works. Um, but then it gets a little more complicated because the next thing he says is, although the law and the prophets witness to it. So he uses law in a different way. So he says, this has been manifested. It's been shown forth, put clearly forward, even though those oracles of God that the uh, Gentile or that the Jews had, remember what, what advantage is there to being a uh, Jew? Well, great. They have the oracles of God. That is where this promise of a righteousness that comes from God to people is, is witnessed. It's in the law and the prophets. They bear witness to this righteousness. So it's not something new that he's just throwing out on us. Uh, this is something that he's been promising and working on. And we'll see that next week when we look at Abraham. Abraham was justified in this way. Uh, so this is in the Law and the Prophets. Now, Law and Prophets is just Paul's shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament. 
Um, sometimes it's called the law. Sometimes it's called the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's called the law and the writings or the law and the prophets and the writings. It's just kind of a general way that it's spoken of in the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, look for that righteousness that comes from God. And, and how do you get it? Because it's in there. So that's, that's where he starts with is, is this is the good news is you are guilty, but there is a righteousness that can be yours. And how do you get it? You have faith in Jesus Christ. It's available to all who believe. Now he ends with that statement, all who believe. And then the very next thing he says is for, is there, for there is no distinction. Um, now remember he talked about distinctions before. Uh, are the Gentiles lost and the Jews saved? No, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short. So that's what he's saying here. All, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between irreligious and religious. All have fallen short. They have all missed it. But he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the irreligious fall short of God's glory. That's obvious. The moralist falls short of God's glory. Even the observant religious person falls short of God's glory. So what does it mean to fall short of God's glory? Um, some, I've heard in the past people refer to that term that falls short as, as an arrow being shot and missing the mark. As if what we have to do is that we have to live up to this standard and then we'll hit the mark of God's glory and, and we'll be there. Um, that's probably not terribly wrong, but I, I think there's more to it than that. All have sinned. It's not we have uh, given it our best shot and not made it. We've sinned. And so when we fall short of God's glory, what it means is God created the universe for his glory. In, in all the things that, that back in uh, chapter 1 again, verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, everybody, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God's glory has been shown in creation, in all things that have been made, including us. And so we fall short of that because of sin. So that's where he goes in, in chapter one again, in verse 23, he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they fall short of the glory of God because they won't recognize who God is. That's where sin has broken everything. So when we have fallen short of the glory of God, what it means is we don't love God as we should. We don't, we don't worship him. We're not thankful to him as we should be. All fall short. <clears throat> There's no distinction. There's no excuse. And so what he goes on to say, and he says, and all are justified by his gift or his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So does that mean that if everybody is sinful, if all have fallen short, um, when he says all are justified, does that mean that everybody's going to be justified? Well, no, because he said earlier, how you become justified, how are you declared to be right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is offered to all. All have fallen short and all are offered this justification because it's offered as a gift. Um, it's a gift given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean everybody is saved because not everybody has faith, but it is something that is available without distinction to all. So justification, this way that God has made for us to be declared right, is a gift. It's given from God to us. It is God's uh, justification 
That Remember that righteousness of God, it comes from him and it is given to us apart from the law. A gift is not given based on law. That's not a gift. That's a reward. So God's grace, when he says it's given by his grace, um, what do we mean by the word grace? Well, grace is, uh, is something that God does because even though we don't deserve it, and that's what grace does, but what is grace as a thing? And I think what grace is, is a good way to explain it is it's God's love undeserved. So this justification comes to us because God's grace, his love, his positive disposition to us, which we didn't earn because it's not from law, has given us justification because he loved us. Because he set his love on us, he has put forward this justification for us. And so we're, we've, um, we're justified by redemption, is the other word that he uses there. And what redemption is, is being bought back. Uh, being p- bought by a price, having a price paid for you. Um, in uh, the 1970s, uh, there was a big campaign about pollution. Um, there was a, a famous video or famous commercial of uh, a car driving down a freeway and tosses a bag of like you know, fast food garbage out the window and it lands at the feet of this uh, Native American. And as the camera pans up, he's got a tear in his eye. Um, that was trying to tell us, hey, stop littering, stop polluting the planet. Well, in Michigan, the way they responded was they passed a law that said that there's a 10 cent deposit on every bottle or can for beer, soda, uh, wine, that kind of stuff. And so when you bought your six pack of of Diet Pepsi, you paid an extra 60 cents. And the way you got that 60 cents back is you brought those cans back to the store and you turned them in and they gave you a dime for each one. You redeemed your money. Um, you brought that thing back and, and you received your money back. So that's what it means that we are redeemed. We're being bought for a price. Uh, there is a debt owed uh, because of our sin. There was a debt owed. And what, what he's saying is that Jesus has come and he's paid that debt. So it, it, the next thing he says is, is this Jesus is whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, different versions will translate that differently. I think the NASB says expiation. And um, propitiation and expiation are not words that we use very often. So let's explain what that means. Propitiation has to do with reconciling someone to a person they have offended. So propitiation is talking about the reconciliation between two people. Um, you're, You're doing something to or for the person that's been offended. That's to propitiate. What does expiate then mean? Expiate is very similar, but a slightly different take. And so to expiate is to do something about the matter that caused offense. So someone is offended, someone is, is, uh, has been um, wronged. And so to propitiate would be to go to the person who's wronged and plead on the behalf of the person who wronged them. To expiate would be go to the person who was wronged and fix that thing that they did. So like I borrowed your car and got in an accident. Uh, if somebody was going to expiate, they would go and get the car fixed. Um, if someone is going to propitiate, they would go and they would plead with you to be nice to me, even though I wrecked your car. Uh, so that's the subtle difference. Why is it both? Well, because both are true. It's translating a word that's kind of hard to, to nail down. Uh, but what happens is Jesus makes propitiation. He, he reconciles us to the Father, but he also makes expiation. He deals with that issue that separated us from the Father. And how does he do it? By his blood. Now, when Paul says blood here, what he's referring to, it's a keyword. It's not the hemoglobin that comes out of Jesus' veins. 
it is referring to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's a shorthand way of saying all that Jesus has done uh, because it, it culminated in spilling his blood and then rising again from the dead. So there's all of that is put in there. Through that, Jesus is a propitiation or an expiation for us. And how do we get that? How do we tap into that? How do we find out or how do we have him uh, intercede for us? We receive it by faith. So what does it mean to receive this by faith? Well, I think the contrast that Paul has been drawing is law, law versus faith. Um, if we were to do this based on law, we wouldn't need Jesus to stand in between us because what we would say is, look, I'm good enough. I, I've done a few things wrong, but look at all the good I've done. And this, doesn't that make up for it? Isn't that better uh, that I did all these good things? Um, that is law. That's saying, I've kept these things. I've done these things that you've asked. Therefore, you owe me. But to receive it by faith is to look at God and say, I have no hope. I have no reason to assume that you would ever do any of this for me. But I'm trusting that Jesus did it. That's the only reason I have. It's the only hope I have is that Jesus did it for me. I am putting all of my faith in the fact that Jesus did it on my behalf, that his blood was sufficient. So one time Lisa and I were walking down the boulevard and uh, some people came up, they were evangelizing and uh, they, they stopped and they chatted with us for a moment. They said, so if you were to die and go to heaven and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And what I said is I would uh, very politely lean around him and say, I'm with him and point at Jesus on the throne. That's what would be faith is to say, I have no, no answer for you at this gate, Lord. I have nothing I can offer to you, no reason whatsoever that you should let me in. But I'm counting on Jesus, the fact that he's in there and he's standing before your throne on my behalf. That's what faith is, is saying, I'm trusting in that promise. So Jesus has done all of that. And, to remember, and remember, that's apart from works. That is not based on how good you've been. That is based solely on the fact that Jesus has stepped in between and made that way for us. So we're not working for it. So then Paul begins to answer what might be a question that people have. Well, wait a minute. Um, we're talking in, you know, in, in Paul's time, we're talking, you know, the uh, 50s, 50 AD. What about all that time, all those people before Jesus showed up? Um, what about those sins? What happened there? And so Paul says, look, this, uh, this propitiation by Jesus' blood, that was there to show God's righteousness. Now, when he says God's righteousness here, he's talking about the inherent righteousness of God, his, his, his uh, being good. And we'll see why in a moment. So all of this, this propitiation by Jesus' blood received by faith, this was to show God is righteous, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So all of those sins that had happened before Jesus ever came, God forbear them. He, he bore with them, and, and he put up with them for a period of time, and he passed over them. Now, does that mean that he ignored them, that there will be no punishment for him? No, that can't be, because the next thing he says is, this was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if God is just, he must punish sin. He, he is a just God. Sins, offenses against him must be addressed, or he's not just. But he passed over these sins. He, he dealt with them in forbearance because he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is he getting at here? 
what he's getting at when he talks about his divine forbearance and passing over sins, forbearance is not to ignore something. You don't just go, ah, oh, never mind, it, it doesn't count. It has to do with bearing up under something to, to carry a weight. So if you're going to put something on somebody's shoulders and they forbear it, they carry it, that isn't to say that they slough it off and walk away. It is to stand up, to remain upright underneath that. So God's wrath, remember, is not capricious or indulgent. Um, remember um, how he dealt with sins. Think of the Old Testament. Uh, the promise to Abraham was that he would inherit the land and that his offspring would go into a land that's not their own. They'd be enslaved for 400 years and they would come back to the land that Abraham walked in. Why? Why 400 years? Because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. There was a certain amount of sin which God would forbear, and they hadn't filled that measure up. He didn't forget about it. When he sent his people in, they were judged for that, for that sin. So the, the sins of the Amorite, God forbear with a certain amount, and then he said that's as much as they, they're going to have for, um, uh, dealt with at this time. So he, he bore with them. So well, what about the generation that came out of Egypt, right? He, he led them out into the wilderness, and I mentioned he said to Moses a couple of times, stand back and let my wrath burn against them. Um, he lived with them. He traveled with them. He kept them safe. He provided manna for them. He provided quails. He gave them water from a rock. He did all of this stuff for 40 years. And yet Psalm 95.10 says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see how measured and metered God's wrath is? I swore to them in my wrath that I'm going to obliterate them in the wilderness right now and start over with Moses. No, I swore to them that I would, they would not enter my rest. They will wander in the desert. Their children will grow. And when their children are ready to go, they will go in. And for 40 years, I loathed that generation. So God is forbearing with them. He's, he's faithful and kind. And, and his wrath looks like mercy and graciousness and generosity. But don't mistake the fact that his patience, it, it, it doesn't last forever. It is not an eternal part of what he's going to do. Don't mistake his patience in, for indifference. And that comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued, have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter is addressing these scoffers who go, yeah, you know, we haven't seen anything since, since the very beginning of time. Things have pressed on. So, you know, what's the big deal? Why, why, why the hurry, Peter? And then Peter goes on and he says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is for, had forbore, uh, had bore with those sins previously, had passed them over, but they will be dealt with. They will be done. Something will happen to it. And so that's why Paul says, but now, at, at this time, this is the right time. Now the, the, uh, the uh, um, righteousness of God has been shown to be available. And he did this to show his righteousness at the present time, right now is why he put up with those sins, because he was waiting and he was leading to the right time when Jesus would come and deal with it, so that he may be just and the justifier. 
so that in Jesus, God may show his justice. He may show, I am not ignoring any sin. In Jesus, they are punished. I will be the just, I will be just, and I will be the justifier of the one who has faith in him. I will take Jesus' righteousness and apply it to that one who has faith in him. Jesus is put forward as a propitiation or an expiation to show God's righteousness. So how can it be good and how can, um, how can he be just and good and right and justify sinners? Shouldn't he judge all sin? Not by ignoring those sins, but by dealing with them, by passing judgment on them, either on the sinner or by the one, on, the, um, on Jesus for the one who has faith in Christ. So God is going to judge all sin. Uh, he previously passed it over, but at the present time. And so how does he do that? By the blood of Jesus. So here's the thing. Now the righteousness of God has been, um, uh, has been revealed. Um, God is going to show his, his righteousness at the present time. So what we need to remember, what we need to hear in the midst of this, is that God will judge the intentions and the thoughts of man according to Paul's gospel. It is coming. And, and Peter's warning is don't think that just because he is, he is taking his time now and he's accomplishing something that he's slow to keep his promise or that he won't do it. Now, the, God, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Today is the day that he has shown his righteousness. So today is the day that we need to appeal to it. That's where we need to be at this moment is to recognize from chapters one, two, and three that we have all sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of where we should have been. We have ignored, we have turned blind eyes to the glory of God and instead worshiped the images of man and creeping things and birds and all kinds of other stuff. Right now, today is the time to stop doing that and to say, Lord, I'm not gonna count on anything of myself. I am not gonna trust in any good I have ever done. And instead, I'm gonna trust in the blood of Jesus Christ because I don't want to be declared innocent that's not sufficient, Lord. I want to be declared righteous in your sight. I want to have the, the righteousness of Jesus applied to me. I want to be justified. That's where he goes with that. That's why today is the day that you need to do that. That's, that's what happens now. It's, it's available now, and we don't know how long that window is going to be open. We don't know when Jesus is going to return and judge the nations. Um, but it's coming. And so you have an opportunity at this moment to say, I want Jesus' righteousness applied on my account. I want to stand before God and go, not because of me, but because of Jesus, and to know that God is just in judging sins, and he justifies you. He can justify you. So that is the beautiful promise. That is the promise that God has, has offered. This is the message that Paul has been commissioned to carry forward throughout the Mediterranean, and now he's looking to go into Spain. This is the message that the church has borne and carried across the globe, is now is the time. Justification is a free gift of God's grace, and it is appropriated by faith in Christ, period, apart from the works of the law. But now... So where Paul ends this thought is he goes, then what becomes of our boasting? What? Where did boasting come from? Why, why, why would boasting be in there? Well, listen to what he's talking about. What becomes of our boasting? And when he says our, I think he's probably talking about Jewish boasting. Um, this, this boasting that the Jews could have, look, we've got this and this and this. He says that's excluded. It, it, that kind of boasting, if God's 
justification of his crediting to you a righteousness that is not your own is his gift of grace, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ, then any, any form of boasting is automatically excluded. What are you going to boast about? How good you were to figure this out? It is a gift. He gave it to you. You, you didn't do anything to gain it. He gave you this gift. So he says it's excluded by what kind of law? What rule would ex exclude my, my boasting? Um, by the law of works? Well, yeah, that's excluded because your works are not working. They're not, they're not doing it. But he says, no, it is the law of faith. And this is, again, where Paul gets that word law in a very complicated place. A law of works is possibly talking about the Old Testament and all the laws there. I think, given the context of what we've seen so far, it's, again, that moral principle that we all know about that actually gets expressed and codified and put into writing in the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments. But it's something that's basically in our hearts and that we know. So if you're doing the best you can, if you're going to go to God and say, you know, I did the best I could. I worked really hard. I tried real hard. That's boasting. That's saying, Lord, um, I did all of these things according to all your rules, and therefore you owe me. This, this, you owe me this. And, and that kind of boasting is excluded by a law of works. Your works aren't worth it. They don't count. But it's the law of faith, the principle of faith that says you can't boast. You can't boast because you have faith, because if you're going to boast about your faith, what you're saying is, I'm more intellectual than those people who didn't get it, or I figured it out, or uh, I just, you know, was in the right place at the right time, and the right person talked to me, and so I have this benefit. Even our faith is not a point for boasting. So he says in verse 28, for how, or for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. That justification, if Paul hasn't made it clear then, he's making it clear now, that justification, you are justified by faith, apart from works of law, apart, away from, removed from, disconnected from any works of the law, any of the good deeds that you have done. It is only by trusting in the blood of Jesus that we are saved. And so he goes on to explain, well, why, why is that? Why would it work that way? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles only, also. Um, so what he's saying here, now wait a minute. Um, if you look at what the Romans were doing when Paul went through Athens, they had temples to all kinds of gods and goddesses. Um, was God their God? Or if you look in the Old Covenant in the nations surrounding uh, Israel, they had uh, Baal, they had Ashtoreth, they had Mordok, they had all these other guys. Um, was he the God of them? Well, in one sense, yes, he is. But we go back to the beginning of chapter one. They rejected who he actually is and instead put in his place images of man and birds and, and animals and stuff. So he is the God because if you look back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, um, what I believe Genesis chapter one is about is he, Moses is telling the Israelites, our God is the God of everything. So yes, in Egypt, you heard about the God of the harvest or the God of fertility or, or the God of the sun or the God of the moon. Well, in Genesis chapter one, he goes through and he says, our God created all of that. He, he did it with a word. He's not limited to the sea or the air. He created them both. He's not, he's not limited to the things that grow or the things that crawl around the ground. He, he created them both. 
He's not limited to any one portion of the earth. He created the whole thing. In the beginning, the heaven, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the God of all of that. So here when he says, is God the God of the Jews only? Well, in one sense, yes, he is. But in another sense, no, he's not. Um, in truth, he is the God of everybody. He is the God who has created it all, and he is God over all of it. A portion of it is in rebellion against him. And so he is um, the God of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And so now he says, well, who will justify the circumcised? God is one. He is, he is the God who is overall. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Um, by faith, through faith, I don't think it's two different things that are happening there. I think it's just a, a, um, a rhetorical flourish, a way to break it up so you're still paying attention. The point he's making is there is no distinction. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and now all may be justified by faith. That's it. That's who this God is. So is he the God over the Gentiles? Yes, he is. And now that Jesus has come, he's beginning to assert his godhood over the nations. And so the gospel goes out and makes his pronunciation. So this would necessarily exclude boasting under law because the Gentiles didn't have the law. They weren't given the law. The Jews were. God can't justify the Gentiles by putting them under the law. It wasn't given to them. It wasn't intended for that. Instead, to justify Jew and Gentile, he, just, he offers justification through faith. And so here's, here's the big question at the end of this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, Paul has probably heard this in the synagogue when he's presenting faith in Christ. The Jews are probably looking at Moses and going, well, what, are you supposed to just throw this out? I mean, does, does faith just cancel this whole thing? We have a long, long history of this law and these commandments. And now you're telling us it doesn't count? I mean, that was the accusation against him toward uh, the end of Acts when he got arrested is he's speaking against law, uh, the Moses, Moses and, the, uh, and the temple. Um, he's talking about the law. So Paul answers, raises the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, does the law just poof, it's gone because now we have faith? And his answer is, by no means. Absolutely not. That's not what faith does. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Jesus came, and, and in Matthew chapter 5, he says, don't think I came to cancel the law. I didn't come to cancel it. I came to fulfill it. And so what he's talking about here when he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law, is what he said at the beginning, which is that uh, the, the, the righteousness that we have is apart from the law, apart from the working and the, the function of the law. Um, but he goes on to say, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the point, the function of the law was to lead us to Jesus Christ. Through the, knowledge or through the law comes knowledge of sin. So it was intended to bring us to Christ so that we could seek for forgiveness, so that we could seek justification, not from keeping the law, because the law was supposed to conduct us and show us this is where you're supposed to be. Uh, that's how we uphold the law, is by doing what the law intended. And what the law intended was to tell you, you need a savior, you need a righteousness that's not your own, you need the righteousness of God applied to you, you need to be justified. And the great news, the fantastic news is today, at the present time, but now, you may be justified. You may have Jesus' good works applied to your account so that when you go to heaven and God sees you and says, why should you come in? And you say, Jesus, he is my key in. He is my way in. God will look at you and go, come in, my, my, my good and faithful son. Come to me.
instead of, well, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. My good outweighed the bad. I'm, I'm innocent. Well, okay, well, that's nice. Now you're free. Go. Instead, that was that point at the beginning about the justification says you're welcome. Now come in, come to receive your reward. And the reward is what Jesus has earned for us, not ours. It's, it's his work. So on the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you want to be justified? Rather than just innocent, rather than plead your innocence, would you rather be justified? I think justification is a much better status. And the great news is that justification is the righteousness of God. It's God's own righteousness applied to us. That's tremendous news. It doesn't get better than that. Who's more righteous than God? No one. That's the kind of credit that could be put to your account. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. I'm trusting nothing else, Lord. All I know is I want that. I want you. I'm tired of worshiping things in the form of man and, and uh, birds and creeping things. I'm tired of worshiping myself. I'm tired of all of that. Lord, I want that righteousness. Would you apply it to me? Because all I'm going to do is trust in Jesus. That's the hope we have. That's the but now. That's the good news. And fortunately, we get to unpack some more of that. That's where we'll be going with the rest of this. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for those miraculous words, but now. After being faced with our weakness, our sinfulness, how none does good, none turns to you, all have turned aside and fallen short, but now. Lord, thank you for presenting to us the righteousness of Christ offered on our behalf. And Lord, I pray for any of my friends and family who haven't taken hold of that yet, who haven't grasped and clung to that righteousness that can be theirs. Lord, would you break through? Would you give them that gift? Grant them the faith they need and give them the righteousness of Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.